If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to continue in some of the just different parts of the Sermon on the Mount. And this one will be in verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17, Christ, Jesus speaking, says, Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so we're going to look at today how Jesus fulfilled the law. If you would, bow with me. Father, I thank you again for a day, a beautiful day, and and time to worship and time to come together. And for these souls who you've gathered here, and I pray, God, that this message would encourage, would edify your your people, God, would edify us as a church, as a body of believers. I pray, God, that if there's any here who do not know you, who have not bowed a knee to you, that you would grant them repentance on this day, that this message would penetrate the heart of the unbeliever. Lord, if there's any who are weary or who are fighting God, that this would be an encouragement to bring them back close to you and that we would uh, that we would glorify you through that. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So we're going to look at five ways that Jesus has fulfilled the law. So that's the question. How did Jesus fulfill the law? This is a very important subject. The law. What do we do with the law as Christians? What do we do with that? What, we are saved by grace. You know, I, I, was, I, I met um, some, some new people that are going to Boleg's church last week. And we were, I, I was visiting with them, and it kind of reminded me, I was kind of telling them how I came to be where I am, and it was just a reminder. I remember sitting in a meeting in a church that did not understand grace, and saying, and, and I was part of the church that didn't understand grace, and I made this statement, we all agree that we're saved by grace, right? And they actually, at that time, blasted me. And said, no, we're not saved by grace, we're saved by works. Basically, in a nutshell, that's what they said. I was saying we're saved by grace, but I had a completely different definition of grace than what the Bible had. The grace that I believed was, God gave me enough grace through Jesus so that I could now be good enough, I could do good enough to earn my way to heaven. I think there's a lot of people, even in more theologically sound churches, that have that misunderstanding. Because it's kind of a natural way for man to think. Especially in the United States where we earn everything. We're in a performance-based culture. Right? So we, we don't feel like we don't understand a completely free gift. I, don't, I think that's the nature of man. Because nothing else in in this world is truly free. But this truly is. And so it's very important that we understand this. It's very important that we understand our relationship with the law and with grace. And how did Jesus 
fulfill the law and the prophets. So the first way is he was made under the law. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to move around some. And for the sake of time, we may not turn to every place, but this one we will. Galatians chapter 4. In verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Other translations may say, made of a woman, made under the law. So Christ, even though He is eternally above the law, He was born under the law. What does that mean? It means that He was put under the law. The submission of the law. He had to carry it out. He was put under the same requirements that all mankind was. That was to live holy. He had to demonstrate that by living under God's law. And this demonstrates the importance of God's law. Christ himself, God the Son, born under the law. He came under submission to the law. That's the first reason. The second reason goes right along with that. Jesus fulfills the law by keeping the law. And when you look through Jesus, the life of Christ, this becomes obvious. He, how he thought about the law. How he strive, strove to keep it. And how he kept it to perfection. I'll read a few scriptures. First Peter one twenty two says, "Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth." Christ had no deceit in his mouth, and I dare to raise a hand. Anybody that has never had deceit in their mouth, of course we have, right? That's how we. The, the if you're witnessing to somebody, you want to get their attention real quick. You say, "How many lies have you told in your life?" And what's their answer? Countless. If you're being honest at all with yourself, it's countless amount of lies. Every one of us. And, And make no mistake, a misleading of the truth is still a lie. We've all told lies. Many times over, we've had deceit in our mouths. Christ lived this earth without ever doing that. That's hard to imagine. It really is hard to imagine. No deceit was found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15 says this. says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He was living under the law, and he was keeping the law. The only one to ever do that. Turn to First John chapter three. First John chapter three, and verse four says, "Everyone who practices sin, or everyone or whoever commits sin, also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness." And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. We have a high priest. We have a Savior 
who was sinless, who kept the law to perfection. In Matthew 26, the chief priests and Pharisees, they had to bring in false witnesses to testify against him. Why did they have to bring in false witnesses? And they had a lineup of them, and they had to pay them. People willing to take money to lie about Christ because he was sinless. He was perfect. If they could have found one thing wrong, they wouldn't have needed the false witnesses. But they had to line them up to lie because he was indeed guiltless. He had kept the law to perfection. And there were times when they would try to accuse him, if you remember. They would try to accuse him. They would try to catch him. Hey, we caught you. You did this. Well, that was usually their own man-made laws. Or they misunderstood the law that God had given, and he would absolutely turn that on them because he was in perfection. He kept the law. Every jot and tittle, Jesus fulfilled the law in that sense that he kept the law perfectly. Okay, so the third reason, he fulfilled the law by receiving the punishment that the law demands. So he was born under the law. He kept the law perfectly, and now we see that he receives the punishment that the law demands. The law condemns sin, and the condemnation of sin pronounces death. The wages of sin is death. And we're talking about eternal death. We're talking about physical death. When Adam transgressed the law in the very first, the very first of creation, death was pronounced on mankind, and from that point forward, every man would die, or save a few but the physical death is only part of the punishment of the law it's an eternal death and the wages of sin is death and the law must be fulfilled and that its punishment of sin must be carried out and so then of course christ fulfills this part of the law on the cross on the cross he became sin that knew no sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So we see God's justice coming through the law. We see the, the, the law condemns. It reveals sin, and then it condemns those who have committed sin. That's really the purpose of the law. And Christ comes and he fulfills that requirement for those who will believe in him. He satisfies the eternal death penalty that the law requires. We're going to get more into this as we go along in just a little bit. But he satisfies the wrath of God on that point. We have to remember this. The law knows no salvation. The law cannot provide salvation for anybody. That's not its purpose. That was not its purpose from God, and it cannot do it. The law provides no escape, no hope. The law only provides knowledge of sin and punishment of that sin but when Jesus fulfills the law in this way, he removes the punishment 
of sin. He fulfills that. God has wrath stored up eternally for those who will break his law. That's justice. It has to be poured out on somebody. There cannot be a forgiveness of sin without... And God has to maintain His justice and His grace at the same time. This is a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult thing for us to understand. Why? Because how do you forgive somebody and still be just? How do you have this law that condemns and obviously we're all guilty of breaking this law? How can I have this law that's holy, it's perfect, it's given by God, how can I have this law that would condemn you and yet still forgive you? Christ. Christ comes in the gap. He stands in the gap. He fulfills that law by keeping it perfectly, and then he dies in the place. So the reason that he can fulfill the punishment of the law is because he's perfect. So he fulfills the punishment of the law as well. Number four, Jesus fulfills all the ceremonial parts of the law. There were many, many ceremonies. There were many feasts. I've taught through the feasts here in equipping hour. There were many feasts that were being held. There was much sacrifice. There was many ceremonies that were held in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And Jesus fulfills those ceremonial parts of the law. When you go through, and this is where it aggravates me so much, when you hear things like, we need to unhitch the Old Testament, that's actually blasphemous. That's like cutting Jesus in half. He is the Word of God. You can't unhitch the Old Testament. Matter of fact, you can't understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. It is one complete work of God. And if you want to see Christ in the New Testament, if you want to see the fulfillment of the law, you have to see the law. And he is the ceremonial parts of the law. He is the unleavened bread. The feast of, think about the feast, unleavened bread. He is the sinless body that was given on our behalf. He is the first fruit offering. He is the Passover lamb. He fulfilled the feast of booths. The Feast of Tabernacles, when he came down and dwelt with us, he tabernacled with mankind. Sinful man, he comes and he fulfills that. He is the the atonement that covers the sins of his people. Look Look inside the temple. He is the showbread. He is the high priest. He is the mercy seat. He removes the need of an altar. There was a big bronze altar inside the temple inside the tabernacle where they would put the slain lambs and the slain heifers onto it to burn for a burnt offering guess what he removed the need for that altar because he was the ultimate sacrifice he's been sacrificed once and for all hebrews 10 10 says by that will have we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of jesus christ once For all, there is no more need of sacrifice. The purpose of the blood of bulls and goats was never to save anybody. It was only to point to the true Lamb of God whose blood could save. That's the purpose of all the ceremonial law was to point us to Christ and He fulfills it all. He fulfills the priesthood forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is the great high priest. 
He has fulfilled and carried out all those types and shadows that were, were required under the law. Guess what? That means those ceremonial parts of the law are no longer necessary. They are great to study. They are great to read about. They're great to understand and to picture in our minds. But they are not necessary. We don't need a sacrifice anymore. We don't need a temple anymore. That's why the temple was torn down. It wasn't needed anymore. He is the temple. Only Christ is needed. And the fifth reason The fifth way that Christ fulfills the law is in us. Through Christians by the Holy Spirit. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, we're going to read 1 through 4. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ fulfills the law in us. So the righteousness of the law is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus through the individuals that he has saved. Back up in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If Christ had not fulfilled the law completely and utterly, you would not have that verse. You could not have that verse. If there was any mingling of the law today with your salvation, you could not have verse 1. Because there would be condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If he left any bit of it up to you, if he left any bit of it up to me, I would be condemned. Praise God that he didn't. Praise God he provided the full substitution. That he fulfilled the law completely in himself and he does it through us, which is an incredible thing. It is an amazing thing that we get to be a part of this. And he did it by giving us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now gives us a desire for the law. The natural man hates God and is not subject to his law. But the man who has received the Spirit loves God and submits to his law. He submits to the requirements of God's holiness. He submits to Christ. And so what is our relationship with the law now as Christians? The short answer is this, that the Christian is no longer under the law in the sense that it is a covenant of works. And if you'll turn to Galatians 3, I think we can demonstrate that with the long answer. 
Galatians 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? The, the word for foolish there is moros. It means foolish, dull, stupid. You can probably figure out what word we get from that. Morons. Paul is using some tough language here. Why? Because it's very extremely important. Who has bewitched you? The language interesting there, bewitched, demonstrating that this is indeed a spiritual battle. This is not just a slight error. Anyone who teaches a gospel other than what we have preached, remember, he said this in chapter 1, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. And Paul's demonstrate even more that this is a spiritual battle. These are not little things. This This is not some unessential doctrine that we need that we can talk about and nobody really knows that we're arguing from silence no this is extremely clear paul makes this extremely clear john gill said this he said for rebellion against and opposition to any of the doctrines of the gospel and especially to this of justification by the righteousness of christ is as the sin of witchcraft we're not playing around here But Satan is clever. Paul was teaching this morning about um, evolution and the, the, the age of the earth and how if you want to, he was talking about um, attacking the creation story because it would be too obvious to attack the the, the cross. And then he was talking about how they've, they've basically attacked the literal Adam. And they're saying, well, Adam wasn't really literal, and, and he, had a, he had a cool graphic that kind of showed Adam to Christ. And right now, it basically they're saying, well, about Abraham is where literal people, that's where it r- literally started. And I was thinking, man, it's so easy for a believer to see the scheming of Satan in this. He's subtle. He's crafty. Well, when God gives you discernment, when God gives you the Holy Spirit, you start to see things like, oh, yeah, it's, it's Abraham now. What's our kids going to be fighting when they're our age? It won't be Abraham anymore. It's just going to continue to move, right? Pretty soon it'll be, oh, well, David. David was the first real, as the first real person. And then it'll, it'll keep moving until they will say, oh, well, it's obvious Christ was a mythical creature or mythical character. He wasn't real. They're taking away, and that's how Satan works, subtly, slow. He plays the slow game. He's crafty, and that's what's happening here. Satan is clever. It's easy us for, to, to look back at this as we read the apostles' warning and correction and say, what were they thinking? It's easy for me to look back when I was believing in myself for salvation and think, that's so foolish. Or how could you believe that? But the reality is, we let it intermingle in with us. Satan is a crafty little guy, and he comes in. Luther said that he does not only bewitch men in a crude manner, but in an artful fashion. He's been at it a long time. 
We can spot the crude manners, and many men have fallen to them. Things like lust and drunkenness and carousing, etc., etc., right? The things that are obviously sin, and yet people have fallen into those. How surprised are we when people fall into the artful deception of Satan? The artful fashion of bewitching comes in a subtle form like a snake. Ever noticed snakes? I don't like them. They move without making noise. How do they do that? They can crawl up a wall and not make a sound. They can sneak in under your feet and you will never know it. Unaware they come in. And that's how the deception, the artful deception of Satan comes in. He comes in quoting scripture. He'll come in quoting Moses. He'll come in quoting the law. And it's coming right out of the scripture. He did it to Jesus. That's why we have to be on guard. We have to be on top of things. We have to study and pray for discernment. That's the artful fashion. The crucifixion had been explained to them. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The crucifixion, and, and Paul, when he's telling the Galatians this, he knows that the crucifixion had been explained to them because he's the one that had done it. He's the one that had established that church. And here's the reality. The crucifixion of Christ absolutely kills legalism. When preached correctly, it leaves no room for you and for I to add anything to our salvation. And here's why. We're talking about the Lord of glory. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the giver of life, the sustainer of the universe, brutally beaten, publicly humiliated, and nailed to a tree. And this is the reason why it's so important. This is the reason why so many legalistic churches, so many legalistic doctrines mess up who Jesus is. Because if you have the Lord of glory... If you have the creator of your life, the creator of the universe, die on a cross, there is and you think you can add to that? That is the most arrogant nonsense I've ever heard. Nobody could believe that. This is the Lord of glory taking the the eternal punishment. And I'm going to add to that? It's absurdity. So what they'll do is say, well, that was not, that wasn't God. That was the first one created. Jesus was the first one created. So that's the reason it's not. Then this crucifixion doesn't have as much power. Well, you're right. If Jesus isn't God, the crucifixion doesn't have as much power. Matter of fact, if Jesus isn't God, the crucifixion has no power. He bore the wrath of God on that tree. He drank every cup of wrath. I remember I had a real hard, uh, just I struggled with this. If Jesus was replacing me, my eternal punishment was eternity in hell. So in order for Jesus to take my eternal punishment, how come he didn't have to stay in hell for eternity? That's a legitimate question, and I struggled with it. 
How come he didn't have to have the same punishment I did? And I'll tell you the answer. Because he could receive the entire full wrath of God in an instant. What would take me eternity of punishment, he, he would receive it in an instant. And not just for me, but for all of those who would believe. He drank every drop in that cup of wrath. But now you're going to say it wasn't enough? There's some who would point to their own good deeds and say, but look what I have done. I've done all these good things. What would Isaiah say about that? Filthy rags. We could take a cup and we could pass it around this room and everybody put their righteousness in it. All of your righteousness that you own, you could put in that cup and we could bring it up here to the front and it wouldn't save one soul. Not one. I think it was actually Adrian Rogers that I heard that from. But one drop of the righteousness of Christ is sufficient to save all those who will believe on him. Your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And there's some, like I was, that would say they were saved by grace, but then somehow I must keep my position with Christ by remaining faithful. I must have some faithful works. I must, have, I must remain faithful so that I can stay saved or so that I can add a little bit of that. No, crucifixion kills that too. You will keep your position with Christ Because he remains faithful. And he that has began a good work in you will finish it. And you will remain faithful because Jesus is fulfilling the law in you by keeping you faithful by the power of the Holy Spirit. You think about that. You think about the assurance that we have in that. Because Jesus said back in Matthew, back where we started, I have not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. And one of the ways he fulfills it is still being done in you. And if he loses any that the Father has given to him, he does not fulfill the law. Man, that's assurance. That means if you are born again and you are in Christ, you are guaranteed to be part of that fulfillment. Amen. Praise God, right? And it's not by your efforts. That's verse 1 of Galatians. Look at verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish Having begun in the Spirit, are are you now being made perfect by the flesh? See, that's what the law was. It was an exposing of the flesh. It was an exposing of the sinful flesh. And somehow you're going to keep it? This really brings out the foolishness of what they're doing. You're going to exchange your freedom for shackles. Right? It'd be like the slave who come along, came on 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 the slave block man comes along and says, you know what? Kind of like, kind of like Hosea did for, for Gomer. 
I'm going to buy that slave. I'm going to pay the full price of him. And you are now free. And the slave going, eh, that sounds like a pretty good deal, but I think I'll go back to this harsh taskmaster over here. I kind of liked getting beat when I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Kind of liked working, overworking, not having enough food. I think I'll go back to him. That's how foolish this is. You've been freed from the law of sin. The Holy Spirit began a good work in you, but now you're going to try to turn to the law to finish it? You've begun with Christ, and now you're going to trust Moses? Think about it. That's what this is. The law was never meant to save man. It was never meant to save. I think this is a misconception that's, that's pretty common. That somehow the law was there so that man would know the rules so that he could be saved. So the law came in and man was supposed to keep the law and then mankind would be saved and they couldn't do it. And so Jesus had to come in order to fulfill it. No, that was never the intent. There's even teaching out there that that's the reason Jesus had to die was because God put the law out there and man just couldn't keep it. And so Jesus had to come. No, that was, that was never... God doesn't work that way. He had the plan from the beginning. The reality is that the law was never meant to save man because it could not save man. It had no redeeming qualities. Even if a man or woman somehow could have kept the law, which they couldn't, they didn't, it did not have the ability to bring mankind from death into life. It had no way to overcome the curse. See, we, we're, we are born sinners. At what point would you start keeping the law after you had already sinned? And it has no way to redeem the previous sins. You can't keep the law. It had no way to overcome death. Death was pronounced on mankind because of sin. The law did not have a way to overcome that death. It wasn't in the design. It wasn't made to do that. The law was brought in because of transgressions. The law showed the true character of God. It showed the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It was actually given to show men and women that they could never justify themselves before God. It was the final point of that. They knew it. It was obvious before the law that man couldn't justify themselves before God. That's, I mean, Abraham was justified by faith. But it came in and made it very, very clear that man or women, mankind, could never justify themselves before God. You get to feeling pretty good about yourself. Just go to the law and see how good you're doing. And that last one is a killer. Thou shalt not covet. And then go to Jesus' teaching about the law and find out, whoa, I don't even have to keep it on the outside. I have to keep it on the inside. If I look with lust, I've committed adultery. If I get angry, hate my brother, then I've committed murder. If I covet, then I've stolen. Right? You can't keep the law, and that's what the law did. It showed how wicked and evil we actually are. It could only condemn And, by the way, that's the law of God. 
That's the law of Moses that was given by God on Mount Sinai. What's even crazier is, well, that law can't save somebody, but let's make up a new one. Maybe that'll do it. And there's a lot of people out there that are naming the name of Christ, that are making up their own laws saying, if we do this, then we'll be saved. You have to do this, this, and this, and this, then you can be saved. If the law that was given by God couldn't save, you're not going to make one up that's going to save. It was given to show us so that we might be brought to Christ. It was given to show us our complete dependence on Christ. The law has a purpose for the Christian, and that is to magnify the grace that has been bestowed upon us. To try to blend in any way our keeping of the law with salvation, either initially or to stay saved, is to deny Christ's perfect atonement. It is to say Christ did not completely fulfill the law. The reality is there, if we do that, then we would be numbered with the false witnesses that the scribes had lined up against Christ. That's basically what they were doing. They were saying he's not the Messiah, he's not the Savior, he's not God. And if we deny his full atonement, his full work on the cross then we would be doing the same thing. And so to summarize the the Christ fulfilling the law, first was he was born under the law. He kept the law to perfection. He received the full punishment of the law on the cross. He was every shadow and every type of the ceremonial law fulfilled And the final way that Christ fulfills the law is in us through the Holy Spirit living through us and keeping us in his perfection, in his fulfillment of the law. Completely, utterly, and to perfection. We no longer have to fear the condemnation that comes with the law. We don't have to fear it. We no longer have to fear the wrath of God for falling short of his standards. Man, praise God for that, because I don't know about you, but I fall short pretty often. Probably even more often than I know. And we no longer have to try in vain to earn our salvation. Jesus has earned it for us. Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you, God, for Christ. For his perfection, for his glorious work, for his, for your glorious plan, Father, for the Holy Spirit who has come, given us this life and given us this ability to see truth and given us this ability to live for you. And I pray, God, that we would each have a desire because of our salvation, because of the grace that's been stowed on us to live for you to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.